Robots Radio presents... Hey everybody, welcome into the podcast. We are back with another special bonus episode. Bonus episode! Today we are reviving our My Favorite Movie series. This is the series where we talk to owners, CEOs of distilleries, and we talk to them about their product, maybe give us a little bit of a rundown on their lineup, and then we talk about their favorite film. And we are joined today by one of the coolest people we've talked to so far on the podcast, Marco Karakashevich. He is the master distiller and CEO at Char Bay Distillery in California. We are so excited to have him on the podcast. Marco, how are you today? Bob, I'm good, man. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm already a big fan of you because you have this nice Serbian last name. And Brad and I are here in Ohio, and like the the immigrant population in Ohio historically was Eastern European. So like, I grew up. My mom's Hungarian. We grew up eating the good Eastern European food. Yeah. And I saw Karakashevich, and I was like, "This them's my people over there at Charbet." And you said it totally right. You know, that's uh, that's that's refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, part of the reason why we uh, we named Charbet uh, the distillery Charbet because Karakashevich just you know it just doesn't fit on the label. No, not, not that very doesn't well. quite roll off the tongue. Yeah, you know, if someone brutalizes the word Charbet, I don't care. It's not my damn last name, you know. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Works so, out better that way. Marco, can you walk us through how the Karakashevich family ended up in California? How did this distillery get started? My family's been distilling uh, since 1751 back in Serbia. And my dad's 12th generation master distiller. So it's, it's, you know, it's usually parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents. And we had a very successful little distillery complex uh, in my family in Serbia uh, up to the 60s until uh, Tito came in and nationalized uh, all the private businesses in, in Serbia or Yugoslavia at the time. And so my dad said, well, you know, I'm left with a, you know, a hectare on the other side of the river. Not a whole lot of uh, not a whole lot of opportunity going on here, so I'm going to move to America. And so he, my dad, went to Germany and studied in Geisenheim for enology, became a certified enologist, and then went into Canada in the late '60s. And someone heard about him and imported him into Michigan to set up a winery in Traverse City. And then dad got a job at a monster winery in California in the early 70s. They bought property on Spring Mountain in St. Helena in Napa Valley. And uh, come 83, 1983, my dad said, that's it. Um, I'm done being a consultant winemaker. I want to start my own winery and distillery. Hmm. And uh, Charbet was started in, in 83. Now, before we get into talking about Charbet itself and the distilling process, which is super interesting, I, I have to ask a question to the native Californian. Like, when your dad arrived in Napa, was it was it pre-Napa boom, or was it like was he right in the midst of it as it was kind of taking off on the worldwide stage? Oh, it was still the seventies, man. So, yeah, um, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't all dressed up, and uh, it was still a. I wouldn't say classic, but uh, it was still, you know, heavily focused on agriculture. There were more than just grapes, but wineries were starting to pop up. Okay. 
We were, you know, I was just talking to Brad a couple weeks ago about that movie Bottle Shock that came out a few years ago, which was about, you know, when Napa beat France on the world stage. And I didn't know, like, I don't know if you've seen the movie or not, but like, I didn't know how how accurate it was to what the vibe was in Napa at that time, because it really just seemed like, it, you know, it was a bunch of like mom and pop kind of down home wineries that that happened to shock the world. It was like a farm town, you know. It was amazing uh, growing up in Napa Valley, just watching the explosion of investment coming in. You know, it's the, you would drive down Highway 29 or the Silverado Trail, and it seemed like every week they're like, whoa, there's another winery popping up, and there's a winery popping up, and there's a mm. cave, you know? <laughs> yeah. And Marco, growing up in such an area, did you always kind of have a sense that you would end up in the alcohol business, you know, in one shape or form or another, did it always seem like you were destined to be in this role? Well, you know, growing up in a distilling family, you do what uh, you do what you're told. Some of my earliest memories, uh, I, I was born in, in Modesto, uh, down in the Central Valley of California, where my dad was a winemaker down there for uh, United Vintners. It's a monster winery. Uh, and then we moved up to Napa Valley and there's pumps and trucks and tractors and grapes getting dumped and, you know, things happening all over the place. And yeah, it was cool. And then the distillery popped up when I was 10. So I, my first job in, in our distillery uh, was actually uh, inside the still. I was sitting on a bucket, you know, scrubbing the inside <laughs> of the top of the still, you know, right. dripping on my head back in the day. And I'm like, I'm cleaning this thing. I'm cleaning this thing. I'm done. And, you know, this voice from outside the still goes, you're not done. Get get back in there. Finish it. You know, and that's just, that's just the way it was. So, like, you know, most of us were scrubbing bathtubs when we were kids. You were in the still, scrubbing out the still. Yeah, we have a, we have a Charente cognac still from the Prulot family. Uh, the Prulot family in, in cognac, France, uh, has been building these for 400 years. It's an amazing still. Mm. And it's a 600 gallon load. So I don't really fit in the still anymore, fortunately. <laughs> so, you know, I uh, come over to the still after school and uh, go to work. Well, and Marco, we're, we've been looking into this Charbet brand, and what you guys do there is just spectacular. You know, normally with whiskey, you know, you get your normal stages of malting and mashing, fermenting, distilling, and maturing. But you guys have kind of taken that and turned it on its head a little bit by brewing beer before you do anything else. And I just want you to talk to me more about that. Is that something that you had seen done elsewhere? Or like, where did you find the inspiration to do this? Well, in high school, I uh, my dad taught me how to brew beer. <laughs> so You were pretty popular in high school is what I'm hearing you say. Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and... Little by little, you know, being in a distilling family, I'm learning what I'm learning what American whiskey distilleries did because we never made whiskey back in the 80s because my dad's from Serbia and he he wanted to make brandy, which is delicious, too. And learning that, you know, they're using two row malted barley and fermenting it and making a distiller's beer. That's about six, seven percent alcohol. And I'm looking at what I just did. I'm like, well, I just used two real malted barley. And uh, yeah, I added hops to them too, you know, but why can't I distill this and make whiskey out of it, you know? And I said, hey, dad, you know, I've got this beer. 
and uh, it's 7% alcohol and 8% alcohol. And I can distill this and make whiskey, right? And no, you cannot make whiskey out of that. That is not what everybody does. That's not, you know, that's not what anybody does. You don't, you, you don't use that beer to distill and make whiskey. So that was the 80s. <laughs> Jump into the 90s. Uh, we had the opportunity to grab uh, 22,000 gallons of this delicious Czech-style Pilsner, a true lagered, delicious beer. And we distilled it, Dad and I, and made and turned it into Pilsner whiskey. And it was crazy, the flavor that came off the, off the pipe, the distillate, the clear, the clear whiskey off the pipe. And so... We put it in brand new American oak barrels because we had to have something that people could get a grip on and associate this with whiskey because this was not tasting like any other whiskey I've ever tried in my life. I mean, yeah. it, had, it had a boatload of flavor. It was brilliantly clear and uh, it had a huge body and a long finish. It was just kind of like our style of making O to V. So we put it in barrel for two years. I was getting a little anxious around then, you know, and found two barrels and pulled it out of the barrel like oh damn it tastes good just like this dad let's just follow this uncut unfiltered full barrel strength because it is just it's fantastic and that was the first release of the charbet mm. pilsner whiskey release one well you you have been so kind as to send us four samples of whiskey to try and i'd really like to kind of walk through them as we go through the rest of the conversation so mr master distiller can can you lead the way here on the four samples that you've sent to us uh yeah uh where do you want to start which one oh let's i really like the look of this doubled and twisted lot too can we try this one? Oh yeah go for it now what can you tell us about this well doubled and twisted is an old liquor term for you're drinking the good stuff because uh before distillers had hydrometers they would distill their whiskey right double distilled is better than single distilled mm -hmm. why is that because when you distill the first time, that beer distills out and you collect the first part of the distillate. It's called heads. It's very flavorful, but you don't need all of the heads. So you make a cut and then you run into the hearts. It's the good, clean part of the run. And then later on in the run, you start tasting fusel oils, higher boiling point alcohols. You don't want all of those, but you want some of them. So that you as a distiller determine when to make a cut hmm. from hearts to tails. You take the hearts and you distill those again, and now you're concentrating the alcohol from you know 35% to 75% at the start, and you're taking the sweet spot of the whole run as your finished product. So you're taking like the heart of the watermelon, and then you're taking the heart of the heart of the watermelon as the finished product, and that's mm -hmm. double distilling basically. So when, when distillers were distilling and they were double distilling, that was really good. And then in the beginning, right, you know, in the beginning of the second run, the distillate would twist, like super tight helix twist coming off the pipe. And the distillers knew that when you saw that special twist, that was the good stuff. And so that was the doubled and twisted. Wow, interesting. So for me to become a, a 13th generation master distiller in my family, I had to, the, the definition in my family is the ability to meet and exceed your instructor. And then my dad put the, uh, the, extra, the extra little bonus feature of, and release a product into the market that the, that the family's never released before. So, you know, I, I grew up making O to V 
clear brandy, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, okay, I'm going to focus on whiskey and I'm going to focus on clear whiskey and I'm going to make a whiskey in the form of an eau de vie. I'm going to use delicious beer because when you distill, you concentrate flavors. And if you distill delicious, you concentrate delicious. Yeah. And so I sourced a, a, a double IPA beer. I double distilled it. I aged my clear distill, my clear whiskey in stainless steel for four years. Uh, and then I released it in 2009. And I told my dad, I'm like, hey, um, I'm selling the D&T. And uh, so he looked at me and, well, congratulations, you're a goddamn master distiller. Let's, let's drink, <laughs> you know, let's drink some smoked cigars. I'm like, hell yeah. And uh, away we went. And we've been making these crazy hop flavored whiskeys and, you know, single barrel releases and stuff for 22 years. And we wanted to have, and now I, you know, I finally had an inventory of barrels that, you know, I wanted to release some that aren't, you know, $300 a bottle. Right. And so we decided to make a blend. And this blend is straight malt whiskey that was aged in brand new oak for four years. Czech style Pilsner whiskey that was aged in new oak for four years. And a stout, Big Bear Black Stout from Bear Public Brewery in, in Cloverdale, California. And that whiskey was aged for eight years in used French oak that had Chardonnay in it. Mm. And so I took, I took a blend. I made a, a 10 barrel blend of those three whiskeys and, and diluted it down to 90 proof. Something else that I'd never done before too, because I always bottle like 99 proof or 129 proof. And this was like yeah. straight old 90 proof. It's a guzzler. And so my wife, Jenny and I were, we were talking and I was like, God, what, you know, we need to come up with a name for this. You know, it's like, what, what are we going to do? So we're like, we're, we're like looking around searching, you know, and I said, well, we own the rights to, we own doubled and twisted. Let's bring it back. And so this is the doubled and twisted. And, uh, are you drinking the lot number one or lot number two? So we're drinking lot two. And I have to say, you know, not not to not to interrupt you on your role here, yeah. but one of the things I love about your whiskeys, we've, uh, you know, I've tried all all four of them before we hit record because I always, you know, I got to do my research, you know. I love the way that the hop flavor is integrated into the whiskey. You know, Brad and I have done beer barrel finished whiskeys before on the podcast, and you know, specifically a, a very large producer of Irish whiskey is famous for their beer barrel finished whiskeys right now. Yeah. And we don't, we really, really didn't like the IPA version of that uh, expression. Yeah. And I have to say when, when you're distilling the beer into the whiskey, the hops bring this really wonderful flavor to it. And especially on the finish, like, you know, it tastes like a whiskey and especially with this one, it has that really great malty scotchy kind of nose to it. And the hops don't really show up until like on the back end for me, but they're so well integrated into everything that it, you know, what we hated about the Jameson was like, it tasted like half whiskey, half beer, and those tastes were kind of divided on the palate. And in this, it's just so beautifully kind of married into everything. Thank you. Uh, that's kind of talking like oranges and peacocks right there. You know? <laughs> it's uh... It's a, you know, an Irish whiskey, a tasty Irish whiskey finished in a barrel that had beer in it prior 
um, there, it's just, it's a completely different product. Absolutely. Right? There's, there's no, it's a, it's a completely different style. And the, uh, the top notes of the hops, not the bitter notes, because bitter flavors are bigger molecules than alcohol molecules and bigger than water molecules. So those bitter flavors do not transfer over in the distillation process. So they stay in the still and go down the drain. Interesting. So what you get are the delicious top notes, the, the green spice of the hops, and those are alcohol-soluble. So those come along for the ride out of the still and into the pipe. That makes a lot of sense because Brad and I are not huge IPA drinkers in general because of that, that increased bitterness on like the IBUs. And I'm not getting that bitterness yeah. here at all. Like it, yeah, you, I get that get all the time. Yeah, people are like, God, I hate. Yeah, they're like, oh, people are like, oh, I hate IPA. I'm like, well, that's fine, but this is an IPA. It's whiskey, okay? You know? <laughs> right. So right. You know, don't worry about it. <laughs> you're not gonna have you're not gonna have those bitter flavors coming out from the hops because they physically can't transfer over. Well, speaking of hop flavor, can you walk us through this second sample that we have, which is the hop flavored whiskey? S. S. That stands for stout. And when we first started making uh, hop-flavored whiskeys, and hop-flavored whiskey is not my term. This is the TTB that put me into that term. You know, whenever someone thinks of, of hop-flavored, it seems like it's going to be like artificial flavor or it's going to be just like straight up in your face, blow up. You know, this is, this is what you're going to taste and stuff. But I, there are exceptions to the rule, and I believe that we are one of them. So when we started making hop-flavored whiskeys, we, uh, we were using a – Czech style Pilsner. And then I started making fresh picked fruit flavored vodkas when there was like absolute citron and stoli orange on mm -hmm. the market. And there was no ballistic explosion of rows and rows and rows of vodkas on the market. So it started catching up though. The other people started catching on to vodkas and flavored vodkas and stuff. And I said, man, I got to get back in the distillery and start making more whiskey. And so then I was thinking one night, because I run 24 hours a day when I'm distilling. So I'm up in the middle of the night and stuff and just waiting for cuts. Thinking, God, you know, I do love the Big Bear Black Stout. I mean, it is tasty. And uh, it's a huge contrast between the stout and the IPA beer. So I, I texted my I texted my buddies at the, at the brewery. I'm like, hey, can I get a tanker? of uh your big bear black stout please next time and they said sure we're actually making that uh in a couple of weeks i'm like oh perfect man yeah then uh, we got the tanker we distilled it i distilled it and barrel aged it in uh french oak that had chardonnay in it prior to that and so that's the stout uh the one you're drinking uh was the first release uh it was in the barrel for three and a half years in french oak and uh, we distilled that, uh, distilled that in uh, 2011. So as we get into the second part of our interview here, you know, we always transition into talking about the distiller's favorite movie. We try to marry this concept of film and whiskey. And Marco reached out to us and said that his favorite film is Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. I'm really excited to talk about this. I know Brad is not a huge fan of horror films, um, but I was literally just talking about The Shining with somebody the other day. And um, Marco, as we get into the third sample that you have for us here, which is the R5, yeah, I'm going to kind of sip on this as we talk about The Shining, but tell us what it is about this movie that has really stuck with you all these years. Well, 
I was a kid in the 80s. And I believe this came out in like what, uh, 80, what was it, 83, 84? I think it was 1980, actually. Yeah. So it was like right at the beginning of the decade. 1980. Yeah, that would make more sense. Like right around 80. Uh, we, we lived, uh, my parents bought like 17 acres up on top of Spring Mountain in, in 72. And so we lived in, in this in the cabin overlooking Napa Valley, like way on top of Spring Mountain. And I, I, got, I was sick. I think I had cold or flu or something. And so there was a, a party, a family party that uh, was uh, at a friend's house. And so I stayed at home. And uh, it was dark out, you know, raining, it was cold out, and the wind's blowing from the north. And I'm sitting there, you know, I'm watching The Shining as a kid because I'm like eight years old or nine years old or something like that. Let's see, in 80? Yeah, I was, uh, I was seven. All of a sudden, our power went out at our house. And I'm in the middle of, of The Shining. And power goes out of my house is blackout <laughs> raining out dumping rain i'm up on top of the hill i'm by myself I'm like oh my god <laughs> it, was, it was nuts you know the power came back on tv kind of turned back on again finally and stuff and then i continue watching the movie and it, that, that just kind of it kind of set the pace for the rest of the whole movie for me and i was just freaked out and uh just uh but in a good solid way and uh Ever since then, I just, I just love it. I mean, the lines that come out of that movie, I mean, <laughs> it's classic to me. I mean, and you've got Jack Nicholson going full Jack. Like, we, we just did um, yeah. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest a few weeks oh, ago on the podcast. And, you, you know, go. we were talking about Jack going full Jack there. But, man, he takes it to the next level in The Shining. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and, and talking about taking it to the next level, I've been sipping on this clear whiskey that you sent us, oh, and I'm yeah. I'm really curious, man. This is some powerful stuff. What, what's going on here, Marco? Oh, right on. Yeah, that is that's that's a special brew. It's a a double hopped IPA, so it's double IPA. But then we enzymatically broke it down a little bit more, so that means. Uh, we took the the non-fermentable sugars and uh, broke them down into fermentable sugar and then fermented it again and completely dried it out and then um, added some hops, uh, top note hops, dry hopped it afterwards. So it's a double hop, double fermented, double dry hopped IPA. I mean, it's just crazy. And then uh, we distilled that and uh, the floral and fruitiness notes really explode out of that. Uh, I have some in a tank that I'm aging as clear O to V style. And then I have the second half of it in 500 liter pungent barrels, 132 gallon barrels, French oak that had, uh, that were in the, the wine industry. Um, and so with, by using bigger barrels and by using, you know, badass 500 liter French oak, big barrels, you get a lot less barrel influence which is perfect for me because I want to show off the whiskey in the barrel and not the damn barrel. So that program for me is going to be fabulous. And uh, I'm also going to release some of it uh, the way you're trying it as well. I might, I might cut it maybe down to like 120 proof or something like that. And, uh, or maybe 132 is my favorite uh, and bottle it uh, as a clear whiskey. Well, we have to say, I mean, honestly, 
I don't know if we've encountered a distillery that has so much kind of, you know, ingenuity behind it. Like this is, it's such an interesting concept. I'm really shocked that there there's not more of this in the market already because it just kind of makes so much sense to distill beer into whiskey. And like I said, you have done such a fantastic job of marrying those flavors together with the final product. Uh, I want to ask before we let you go, what what is your current distribution look like? Where can we find you? And then also, you know, any plugs you want to give for upcoming products? Well, thank you. You know, we're, we have no investors, no loans. Uh, we own all our own equipment and we're making a living. That's just how we've evolved, you know, through the 37 years we've been in business now. And so we have, so we have distribution, uh, charbay.com our website uh, we have you know we have a, we have stores around the US that can that can ship as well uh, but we like to direct people there we can't sell retail direct in California which is you know we don't need to get into that um, <laughs> right, right it's just all kinds of wrong I mean you know you can go buy a pound of weed at a store now here but you can't come over to my distillery and buy a single bottle of vodka you know wow. it's messed up and uh, financially frustrating for me but uh, I think what's going to happen is uh, other distilleries want to ship into California and the, the majority of all the distilleries are going to lobby the state of California and then being able to ship into California. Other distilleries can ship into California and if they can ship into California, then we can ship to California and then we can be able to ship back to other states as well. And then eventually we'll be able to sell our own bottles retail direct and that would be badass because then it's like, hey, you want a bottle of that barrel? Right, just let, right. Just let me sell my own product. <laughs> yeah, know? absolutely. I love my distributors. We need our distributors. We need three-tier distribution, no doubt. And I need to be able to sell my own product too. For sure. So right now, all we can do is uh, we can talk about Charbay.com uh, and we're happy to get emails and, and uh, help people find our products. Well, I'll tell you what, we have so enjoyed having this lineup that you sent us, and we hope to have you back on the podcast again sometime in the future. Hopefully, the next time we talk to you, we will hear a good report out of the California legislature about you being able to sell your own product here. Oh, man, I hope it's next week, man. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been Marco Karakashevich. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. We appreciate it, Marco. Absolutely. You guys have a great day and uh, enjoy those spirits. And uh uh, you know, it, you can mix those into uh, cocktails as well. Oh, they will get their full usage. Believe us. Uh, we always go on a uh, Santa Claus uh, Christmas train ride with the skunk train here in Mendocino County. And we always bring the stout because they serve hot chocolate on the train. Oh, man. And the malt flavors from the from the roasted and toasted barley malts from the stout uh, really makes that train ride with 12,000 kids screaming, running up and down the train <laughs> that much, that much more fun. <laughs> I'm sure it does. All right. For the Film and Whiskey podcast, I am Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time. 